Hello and welcome to The Curator on Monocle 24 with me, Markus Hippi. Over the next 60 minutes we'll be bringing you some of the very best interviews and reports from the past year on Monocle 24. This week we look back at Monocle's media summit, get a recap of Monocle on the road in 2021 and hear some of our best big name interviews from the past 12 months. I think you could be more intimate uh, sometimes on record than you can on stage. What I tried to do on stage, if if the song, again, if the song calls for it, close your eyes and take yourself away from the actual being on stage. Sometimes. Tom Jones reveals the secrets behind the legendary sex bomb. Plus, we hear from the director of Daniel Craig's last Bond film. As the day kind of went on, then we're getting closer and closer to that final take. Um, watching the crew members around me just breaking into tears, especially those around Daniel. All that and much, much more over the next hour here on The Curator with me, Markus Hippie. In October, Monocle 24 celebrated its 10th birthday with a party or two, plus an extra special media summit. Among the highlights were journalist and broadcaster Christina Kroh, Finnish news anchor Matti Rönkä, BBC news presenter Michelle Hussein, Zeit magazine's Christoph Ament, plus so much more. In this clip, we hear a very interesting panel with Clarissa Ward, CNN's chief international correspondent, in conversation here with our very own Georgina Goodwin. Clarissa, tell us what it was like for you being in Afghanistan at that time of such major change. Well, I think sometimes as a correspondent, you have the privilege of having a front row seat on history in the making. And, and this was one of those rare instances. We had been in Afghanistan already for two weeks. It was clear that the Taliban was on the ascent, but no one could have predicted such a the you know the fact that Kabul fell in a matter of hours with hardly a shot fired and so you found yourself in this sort of dizzying position as a journalist having covered this conflict for well over a decade of what do we do do we go out on the streets are they going to try to hurt us are they going to try to kidnap us what do we wear how do we speak to them But it was also a tremendously exciting moment because you did. We got up the next morning and we went out on the streets and we put cameras in their faces and asked them lots of questions. And they were very keen to talk as well because they had a message that they wanted to deliver to the world. So it was surreal, but also on a journalistic level, very exciting and on a human level, very desperate. And I mean, that's not obviously the first time you've been in that kind of situation. Uh, you won awards for your, your work in Aleppo in, in, and in Syria. Yeah, I mean, I've been doing this now for over 15 years, and I've covered many different conflicts, um, Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan. Um, I lived in Lebanon for years. I was in Georgia in 2008 during the Russian incursion. I was kidnapped in Ukraine by pro-Russian separatists. So I've been doing it for a long time, but I will say that it, it's a really unusual moment where you are just watching this epic scene unfold. And as the days went by in Afghanistan and we saw Kandahar fall and we saw Herat fall and then they were at the gates of Kabul, And then we saw all the police and military in the streets of Kabul took their uniforms off. They were still manning their checkpoints, but they took their uniforms off. And you had this moment of realizing this is actually going to happen. 
After 20 years, in a matter of days, Afghanistan is going to be under the control of the Taliban again. And what an extraordinary thing just in the weeks leading up to the 20th anniversary of 9-11. I mean, just, uh, yeah, I've never seen anything quite like that. And do you feel some kind of responsibility in, in being there to witness this, to, to write the first draft or report on the first draft of history as possibly one of the only Western voices? I think there's always a huge sense of responsibility. Whenever you're telling someone else's story, you want to make sure that you get it right. And you want to make sure that you're doing justice by the people who are experiencing this and who don't get to just hop on a plane at the end of it and go back home. And so for me, that's a, that's a really awesome sense of responsibility. And am I talking to the right voices? And am I making sure that those voices get a platform? And am I bearing witness to this moment? And it can be different in different contexts. In, in Syria, sometimes, it was just about sitting down with someone who had lost a loved one or whatever it might be and just letting them weep or talk. And it might not even end up on the evening news, but just to have the act of a journalist sitting there and listening and bearing witness and, and sharing that moment can be a sort of cathartic experience uh, in and of itself, I think, for, for, for people in these situations. So it's not just about getting the product on television and, and getting the best the best version that you can out there. It's also about, I think, being a human being as well and understanding that what for you as a journalist might be tremendously exciting for people on the ground might be devastating. How have you seen it change your work over the last 15, 20 years? Well, there's a lot more women doing it now, which is great. <laughs> um, but it's changed enormously as well because the power of social media, which I found, uh, you know, I thought the last panel was super interesting, but from a journalist's perspective, the power of social media has been enormous because it's allowed for a much greater vibrant diversity of voices, which I think was definitely needed, and it's also allowed for citizen journalism. So what Hafez al-Assad was able to get away with in the 1980s in Hama, Bashar al-Assad, well, he was able to get away with it but he wasn't able to get away with it without the world knowing about it because there were people in those protests every single week holding their cell phones in the sky and capturing the massacres that were taking place. And so that's opened a tremendous amount of opportunity for journalists, but it's also come with some downsides, I would say, because there is perhaps been an inclination in some newsrooms that, well, this whole business of foreign correspondence is very expensive, and if we have people on the ground with their cell phones who can do it for free, basically, and then we can be in London and tell the story from here, then why wouldn't we do it that way? And I would argue that, you know, you need both. You need both things. Um, so I, I think there's been a lot of change in terms of, of how we aggregate information. It's also presented enormous challenges in terms of how we verify information. There is a huge amount of misinformation and disinformation out there, and it's very challenging as a journalist to try to wade through it all and see what you can independently verify and ultimately publish. Clarissa Ward, CNN's chief international correspondent, in conversation with George Negodwin at this year's Monocle Media Summit. 
Next to another big name on the world stage, there are many reasons to be hopeful about international diplomacy and multilateralism. That's what United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres told us in an interview earlier this year. Monaco's news editor Chris Chermak spoke with the world's best-known diplomat about reforming the UN, why he is optimistic and how he responds to criticism about having countries like China and Russia on the Human Rights Council. It is clear for me that progressively nationalism, populism and the other aspects related to it, from xenophobia to racism uh, to intolerance of different sorts, uh, that to a certain extent would correspond to a post-enlightenment world. In my opinion, this trend is starting to lose ground. Just to give an example, the populist leaders were the most ineffective in dealing with the COVID around the world. People are getting conscious of that. If one looks at what has happened uh, in elections around the world, uh, one year ago, the key issue in those elections would be migration. And unfortunately, migration used as a tool to create fear, to create hatred, and to promote uh, these uh, kind of populist, irrational, uh, and xenophobic political forces. In recent times, uh, the key element in elections has been the COVID and the climate. And we have seen climate-friendly parties and political leaders gaining ground in many parts of the world. So I think that slowly, and of course this is a battle that never ends, and we cannot uh, just believe that everything is uh, moving in the right direction so we don't need to care, but slowly I believe that the idea of solidarity and the idea of international cooperation is gaining ground in relation to what was the predominant trend of uh, one year ago, clearly in favor of uh, nationalism, populism, xenophobia, intolerance, and uh, other factors uh, that were undermining the trust, the trust between peoples and institutions, the trust among countries, and the trust within communities themselves, where, of course, polarization was becoming a threat, even a threat to the working of democratic societies. I hope that uh, democracy will be coming back, and I hope that uh, rationality will be coming back, tolerance will be coming back, and international cooperation based on solidarity will also be coming back. But as I said, this is not a one battle. This is a continued struggle. But uh, I think there are reasons to be more optimistic today than a year ago. Well, and in terms of, you said, as you said, this is an ongoing battle. And one element of that battle that I wanted to focus on a little bit is the UN Security Council, an institution that, because of the nature of the divides between global powers at the moment, many would say has become, you know, rather rather paralyzed in recent years And in that sense, perhaps even leading to some global conflicts, perhaps even spiraling out of control or not being brought under control. You, at the end of last year, revived your own calls for reforming the UN Security Council. Where do we stand on this prospect of, say, adding members, permanent members like Japan, India, Brazil, African nations? Is this kind of reform a a realistic prospect? Well, I have no authority to launch this process of reform. Uh, It is entirely in the competence of member states. It's my belief that the reform of the Security Council is an essential element of the reform of the UN. Kofi Annan used to say, and I fully agree with him, that the reform of the UN will never be complete without the reform of the Security Council. 
But it is a very difficult dossier in which divisions in the international community are high and in which, of course, the, the permanent five uh, have a vested interest in preserving the, the present situation. France and the UK have suggested, for instance, a reduction in the possibility of the veto power being used in situations of crimes against humanity and uh, genocide, but even that idea did not move forward. There is a conscience that the developing world is not enough represented, namely Africa is not enough represented, and I hope that this conscience will lead to some possible changes, but in any case, um, this is an area where we still have enormous resistance. And again, in a world in which the global powers are divided, we see space being open for spoilers. And we are seeing in many of the conflict situations that we deal with more and more mid-sized countries getting involved and sometimes having more influence than the biggest powers and becoming an obstacle to both conflict prevention and conflict resolution. I know that there are many important differences among the most important powers, and I believe that some of those differences inevitably lead to a, a, an opposition. I mean, the view about human rights is obviously completely different in the United States and in China, to give an example. But there are areas where I believe there is a clear possibility of convergence. Climate action is one of them. And there are areas where I believe we need to seriously put problems on the table and seriously negotiate. All the questions related, for instance, to trade and technology, the internet, artificial intelligence, cyberspace, are questions in which the risk of a split of the global economy into two, with two different internets, two different uh, dominant currencies, is a big risk also to peace and security. And so my appeal is let differences be expressed, frankly, but let areas of convergence lead to cooperation, and in those areas where we can have confrontation or cooperation, depending on how things evolve, let's at least have a serious and frank negotiation, putting everything on the table and uh, creating the conditions for, if there is a way to bring people together, for that to happen. That was United Nations Secretary-General Antonio Guterres speaking to Monaco's news editor, Chris Jamak. If there's one public health figure who has defined the pandemic in the US, that has to be Dr. Anthony Fauci. From being the voice of reason, often defying the Trump's administration handling of COVID-19, to providing guidance through the vaccination programme. In May of this year, Monaco's Thomas Lewis spoke to Dr. Fauci about his career and experience, as he was also one of the many people leading the way during the HIV-AIDS epidemic in the US, where the politics and action health implications were also often at odds with each other. Here Thomas asks Dr Fauci to reflect back on that time and if there are any parallels between them and now and what are the main differences. Let's have a listen. You know, there are probably more differences than there are parallels, I'd have to say. In the beginning of the outbreak of HIV, the federal authorities did not pay as much attention to it, nor did they use the bully pulpit of the federal government to get people to realize that we were dealing with an emerging crisis, particularly among a certain subset of people demographically. 
that probably was one of the reasons why early on there wasn't the kind of support until the activists and the Congress came in and started to really push for a large amount of support. There was a um, kind of a stigma associated with it, particularly because early on, and even to this day, it's clear that in the United States, as opposed to Africa, that the people who are most at risk and who, who really comprise the majority of the people who get infected are fundamentally disenfranchised groups. Men who have sex with men, injection drug users, commercial sex workers, and so there was really a stigma associated with it. And it wasn't something that was felt to be a general risk to society. And that's why it took some time to marshal all the efforts to address it appropriately. The current situation is certainly different um, in many ways because it is a global threat in an explosive way. You know, in, I mean, HIV, this coming month of June will be the 40th anniversary of the first recognition of cases. So even though tragically there was, you know, over 75 million people have been infected with HIV and over 35 million have died already. That's a big number, much, much more than COVID, but it was projected, it was protracted over a 40 year period. So there's the difference there. One gets your acute attention because it's so explosive and one starts off very insidiously. And yet, when you go back and look at the HIV years, even though there was stigma associated with it, there wasn't political divisiveness. I mean, that's the difference. Here it was just outright pure divisiveness between groups of politically motivated people. We didn't see that back then. There were differences of opinion, as you always have politically, but it wasn't frank, outright divisiveness. Last week, you visited uh, Children's National Hospital with, with Dr. Jill Biden, the first lady. She described you uh, there as our American hero. I'm not asking you to speak immodestly about yourself, but I just wonder from your own work during all of this, the work of your colleagues and people in healthcare institutions around the United States, whether it's felt like a heroic task you've been asked to do or whether personally it's felt like something quite different. Well, you know, I think the real heroes in this are the frontline healthcare providers, the people who are in the emergency room, in the intensive care units, who risk their own safety and work tirelessly long hours in a very frustrating situation. So if I were to pick out heroes, I'm very flattered that the first lady called me an American hero. But when I look about who the heroes are, it really are those who've been out there every single day taking care of very ill patients. And just finally, Dr. Fauci, is the United States doing enough at the moment to go back to the idea of vaccinations to ensure that other parts of the world are uh, able to vaccinate their, their populations quickly? And I wondered also whether you thought the Olympic Games in Tokyo should safely go ahead this year. Yeah, well, I'm not going to comment on... <laughs> The Olympic, I'm going to leave that to the Japanese because every time I comment on somebody else's business, it doesn't, it doesn't work out well. So uh, the Japanese are very competent to make that decision. So we, we certainly are doing a lot. You know, we, we have promised now we'll be giving 80 million doses 
60 million of AstraZeneca and 20 million of a combination of Moderna, Pfizer and J&J. We've joined COVAX. We've either given or pledged $4 billion to COVAX. And there is plans right now to at least discuss the possibility of partnering with pharmaceutical companies to get even more doses, because we've got to do more. The entire developed world really, in my mind, has almost a moral obligation to make sure that because countries don't have the resources to vaccinate their people, that somehow we help them, but help them soon, not two years from now, but soon, because the more you wait, the more people are going to die. In terms of the, the rate and the speed of vaccinations, obviously the United States has done very well, places like the United Kingdom, other places it seems that the, the rate has been much slower. Has there been any information sharing in terms of how health networks in the United States, for example, were able to put shots into people's arms so quickly and speedily in such an organised way, and whether that would be helpful for other countries yeah. who are struggling? It was a, a very intensive effort as soon as... President Biden became president. He instituted a very proactive, forward-leaning uh, program of reaching out with community vaccine centers, federally qualified clinics, 40,000 pharmacies that were in areas, particularly those that were demographically represented by minority groups, getting mobile units out there. It was really a, a very concerted, strong effort. It wasn't something that we just said, well, let, let it happen. It was, we're going to get out there up front and really push the envelope. And it's for that reason why it has been so successful. That was Dr. Anthony Fauci in conversation with Monocle's Thomas Lewis. Next to the tricky question of just how the global economy will get back on its feet after a somewhat trying year to help get to the bottom of this, Monocle's editorial director Tyler Brunet was joined by economist and former Bank of England governor Mark Carney in July. From the challenge of maintaining equal growth across borders to how to move the sustainability agenda beyond rhetoric, they start here by chatting about what's on the horizon. It's pretty positive, to be honest. Uh, If you look at any economy that has reopened or is reopening, virtually without exception, the economy has performed at least as well, if not better than expected. I mean, let's take the US. The US economy is very, very strong right now. We're going to have another strong quarter. Consumption is probably growing 14% or so on an annualized basis. The savings rate is still twice historic averages. So there's still a lot of pent up savings. Fiscal policy, the monetary policy still providing stimulus going in. Companies are starting to spend again. In fact, the biggest challenge that the US economy is having right now is so-called supply bottlenecks. In other words, things have moved from very slow to very fast so quickly that there's shortages of, for example, famously shortages of computer chips, which are slowing some auto production as one example. There's shortages of labor in various areas, because people have been out of work or at home or are still candidly uh, receiving uh, uh, some income support. So they're waiting, planning on enjoying their summer before they get back to work. 
So we see that in the US, which is really, uh, along with China, at the forefront of the global recovery. We're seeing much better signs in Europe. Obviously, things are moving a bit slower because of the pace of the health situation there, the pace of recovery of that. But even there, the pickup is evident. The UK is well strong. Canada, despite us being in lockdown mode, and this is an interesting point, we're still largely locked down, but the economy has adapted so much and the way people spend and the way businesses are operating, that uh, this economy is growing quite strongly as well. And it will only pick up as we properly open up. So in the advanced economies, the picture is very strong. Now, I think the concern, the principal concern one has is that the corona crisis isn't over anywhere until it's over everywhere. And in a number of emerging economies, and certainly in the developing world, there's much less progress on the disease. And there is less momentum as a consequence of that. And so we could have a growing bifurcation in terms of the strength globally. And that's one of the things I think policymakers at all levels have to be working on to to close that gap. When you talk about policymakers, and if you look at those in, in charge of economic policy, are you encouraged by maybe some of your former peers? And I'm thinking both, Mark, in the private and in the public sector. When you think about people who have to be taking a macro view over the next 24 months, what they have to be doing on a regional level as much as a as a global level, do you think that there are the foot soldiers and enough uh, majors and generals in, in place? Or do you also, you know, when you pinball around the world and, of course, look at maybe bleak spots as much as those that are on the up, are we in a position where we're joined up enough? As, and I'm going back to that notion of, of economic policy. Tyler, I think we're joined up enough in terms of big picture macro policy. So in other words, monetary policy, I mean, everyone takes their own responsibilities, but the coordination and the general thrust of it is there and at varying paces in different countries, central banks will be moving to start to withdraw stimulus and they won't all do it at once because situations are different, but that's a good thing for the system as a whole. In terms of fiscal policy, clear stance taken that quote, the mistakes of post-global financial crisis wouldn't be made in terms of withdrawing fiscal stimulus too early. That general stance is in place in, in countries as to the extent to, they can afford to do that. And so again, there's a coordination there. Where we've not succeeded as well is on vaccines. There's not really a meaningful global vaccination effort. There are the start of that with COVAX and other efforts through the G20, but we'll see that really has to be ramped up. We also have to make progress or policymakers have to make progress in terms of debt in developing economies that they've had to take on during this period of time. Many of them are unsustainable, so they need to be restructured and also to provide meaningful, and I underscore meaningful, finance for the transition, the climate transition, the the elements that are really going to support sustained growth. An important step is being taken with the SDR allocation. I know it sounds like obscure plumbing, but it's really important as part of the IMF resources and increase in IMF resources, much of which can go to uh, the emerging and developing world. I suspect we're going to need to do more. And part of that is using the balance sheets of international institutions like the World Banks even more effectively going forward so that we can crowd in private investment in emerging and developing worlds so that we have a global economy that's not moving at two speeds, that's not diverging, but is starting to fire on all cylinders and move together. To summarize, in the simpler end of the spectrum, where should monetary policy be domestically? Where should fiscal policy be domestically? 
I think policymakers have done a very good job and collectively it's having a huge impact. But on the cross-border aspect, there's a lot more work to be done. And part of the legacy of this crisis is that we really need to do this work or else we will end up five years down the road with uh, quite stark discrepancies between different parts of the globe after a very long period where, by and large, we were converging. That was Monaco's editorial director, Tyler Brule, in conversation with economist and fellow Canadian Mark Carney for The Chiefs back in the summer. Still to come here on this special edition of The Curator, we hear from the director of one of this year's biggest films, and the legendary singer Sir Tom Jones discusses his six-decade-long career. Stay tuned. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. You are with the Curator, our weekly highlight show here on Monocle 24, and I am Marcus Hippie. This year saw the highly anticipated release of the new James Bond movie, No Time to Die, which had been pushed back by over a year due to the pandemic. This is the 25th Bond film and marks the final appearance of Daniel Craig as 007. For Monocle on Culture, our very own Fernando Augusto Pacheco spoke to the film's director, Carrie Joji Fukunaga, and he began by asking him how he brought James Bond to a more modern audience. I think it's it was definitely impossible to ignore the Me Too element that we'd been living with when we wrote this screenplay. There's no way to not sort of address the fact that the world is changing, the office place is changing, the dynamics everywhere are changing, and it's, you know, about time. So that is definitely a part of the story, but like, we also were aware you just you can't be reactionary. You can't act like, you know, a corporation might, you know, put a, you know, a stamp on something acting like you're doing something that has to be sort of like tangible within the context of the story and has to make sense and it has to feel like it's real uh, and uh, taken seriously. And I think part of that, you know, Barbara Broccoli is one of the most or the most successful female producer. And um from the 90s when Judy Dench was brought in to play M, there was a change already taking place with the character where she calls out the misogyny in that film. So Daniel's run as Bond is, is, has continued that legacy of evolution. And I think bringing on female double O's and, and really fleshing out the female characters throughout the series, you know, Vesper Lind, I think was a very fleshed out character in the first film, has been the franchise's response to the changing world. And and I was going to ask, you know, what's the most exciting part of directing a Bond movie? Because you're mentioning, of course, the, the more importance to female characters, but I believe even Daniel Craig he portrayed more emotion as well. So I think it's not only about the the big exciting action scenes as well. There's there's quite a lot of kind of emotionally depth to the character as well. But what was the most exciting parts of directing such a you know a large budget film like No Time to Die? Um, 
it was hard to kind of stop and take stock of the moment. I think we were definitely in it for most of the the run of production because it was just time was there was never any time. Uh, and uh, as the title says, and um, but uh, I think some of the more exciting moments were when you you got a second to sort of pinch yourself and and realize you know, what you were doing, whether it was when like the fancy cars came up or, you know, just watching Daniel you know, as Bond do something that felt so quintessentially Bond. You know, in those moments, you were able to kind of appreciate it. But then obviously all the weight of the, the things that were left to be done would come crashing back in and then you're you're back in work mode. And Kerry, was was Bond something that you always wanted to do or was it a bit of surprise when you were kind of <laughs> invited to direct A No Time to Die? And I wonder what was your reaction as well? Uh, well, I had actually sought out uh, Barbara for a drink shortly after Spectre came out. And at that time, Daniel was saying that was his last Bond. So in my mind, they're probably looking for somebody else and a restart. And so I just sort of raised my hand and said, you know, when you get to that point, I'd like to be considered. And then I sort of forgot about it. I went on to, to do another series and that became all engrossing. And when I had finished that series and was about to promote it is when uh, I read that Danny Boyle was dropping out. So again, I emailed Barbara and said, uh, what's going on here? Can I still be you know, considered for this role? And that led to a meeting at Barbara's uh, house in New York with Michael and Daniel and then then more meetings and more story meetings. And then and suddenly I was doing the job. It was, uh, it was kind of... Um, a blur actually it happened so quickly well knowing a little bit of your work I'm, I'm very excited to see what you bring you know to, to no time to die and, and let's be honest here I mean some directors they direct in more than one bone movie I mean who knows I mean if you're invited for another one would you, would you say yes <laughs> uh, I would have to consider it you know I mean I've never really done the same thing twice so it's not so much for lack of passion or desire to, to, to shepherd the character forward even further but it's more just you know with the limited time left that I have to make movies and television programs, I have to really be careful about what I choose because there's, there is only so much time. You know, I felt one thing that I would like to ask, because of course I saw the documentary, Being James Bond, how emotional it was. Tell us about the environment in the set about that, because of course Daniel Craig last time, it was really emotional. It was, it was, it was that last day of shooting was definitely more emotional than I anticipated. I'm um, not someone that usually gets teary-eyed on set and uh, the way you could feel Almost the way when you go to a movie and you, you can feel the room, you know, in a movie, if people are happy, people are crying, it's a, it's a contagious emotion. And on set, it's very much, it was very much that feeling that day. You could feel, I remember getting out of the car and walking towards our, our Cuba streets, which is where we're doing our last day of shooting, and just feeling the weight of it. And then as the day kind of went on, then we're getting closer and closer to that final take. Um, watching the crew members around me just breaking into tears and um, especially those around Daniel. And then when we finally did our last take, you know, it, it was Daniel walking by the camera and then walking away from camera with his back to us. And we did a take, maybe I did a second take and I was considering a third take, even though it's a pretty basic thing. There was nothing I needed him to do differently, but I just couldn't bring myself to say cut and say, that's it. And then there we were, we cut and everyone was waiting outside the doors for him to come back from the shot. And I think, He was even surprised. I think we were all surprised about what it, what it meant. And his words, you know, at the end there were really, um, were very touching. That was Carrie Joji Fukunaga, director of No Time to Die, speaking to Monocle's Fernando Augusto Pacheco back in September.
Staying with the silver screen now, and it's all the way back to April that we look to next. For Monocle on Design, the team caught up with Oscar winner Jan Pascal. The American set decorator won her first ever Academy Award, taking home Best Production Design alongside her colleague Donald Graham Bird for their work on Mank, a biopic on Citizen Kane screenwriter Herman J. Mankiewicz. Monocle's Maylie Evans recently caught up with Jan to discuss the thrills of working on the critically acclaimed film, as well as the challenges of designing in black and white. Mank, it's Orson Welles. Of course it is. I think it's time we talk. What is it the writer says? Tell the story you know. When I was first starting out, I met this wonderful set decorator who said to me, you know, you have about 10 seconds to tell the audience where they are. And that sort of stays with me through my whole career. You know, we really have just a moment. You need to know where you are when the camera's turned in that direction. Have I told you anything about this character? That's one of the joys of what we as set decorators are privileged to do, is to help tell that story quickly. I guess it becomes almost second nature that you're analyzing what's the key, what is the one thing or several things that will really help tell the story of who this character is or what they're about or what period even that we're in to help support that. You know, that's really the excitement is to try to piece all that together. Sometimes I like to say that if you don't notice, then we've done our job properly. Make yourself to home, Mr. Mankowitz, or shall I call you Herman? Please, call me Mank. 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 This is Herman Mankowitz, but where to call him Mank? Mankowitz. Jan, you're designing a film in black and white. And I guess when colour is such a rich tool when it comes to design or aiding in storytelling, when you take that out of the equation, how do other qualities come to the fore? I mean, my brain goes to texture, shape, pattern. How did it work on this film? With Mank, thankfully... David Fincher had done research and he had figured out that if we used our iPhones and put everything on the noir filter and shot our photographs that way, that was the way that the camera he was using would capture the image of what we were filming. So it was quite an essential tool for all of us. And it almost became second nature after a while to see what colors would work because it was quite different. So with looking through at things through the noir filter, it was just so helpful. Mank was in bed for half the movie. So, of course, as a decorator, I was worried about what are his sheets. <laughs> and normally on a normal show, we would dye the sheets or we would have them, we call them tech down. They would just be not quite white. They would just be a little bit grayed down white. But on this one, I thought, I better test it. So I bought about a dozen different shades of pillowcases from white, white to gray to beige and all the in between. And oddly enough, white worked best with our camera, like straight white, which was really stunning to all of us. And so we learned little gems like that. In David Selznick's office, we were upholstering we were having made a um these lovely deco sofas and chairs and my natural instinct was to do a caramel color upholstery but we looked at that through the noir filter and it looked horrible <laughs> it looked like mud 
gray and muddy and dull, just awful. So we shot all of the samples that were available to us. We shot each one. And the one that we ended up with was an really an odd shade of green. It was between chartreuse and olive. And it photographed really well in the scene. And it was just, it looked like the era and it was, it seemed just right. But that one was quite a surprise, I have to say. But then after a while, we sort of got used to which colors worked. And in this movie in particular, we were trying to create a realistic environment as true to the the way they would have been at the time. We didn't want the actors walking into, you know, pink walls and <laughs> and turquoise and purple. Instead, we found colors that worked well with the noir filter. At the same time, it was pleasing to the eye. I also feel that half of our job is helping the actors to feel like they belong and to find their characters and and what they should be and make them feel comfortable and help them inhabit the spaces that we're giving them to perform in. This is a business where the buyer gets nothing for his money but a memory. What he bought still belongs to the man who sold it. That's the real magic of the movies. Thunder, blood, blood, fire, religion. Help! Someone save me! All in one film. That's director proof. That's why I always want man around. That was Monaco's Maylie Evans in conversation with Oscar-winning set decorator Jan Pascal. Up next, we turn to an episode of our series, The Power of Sound. As she released her debut album, Collapsed in Sunbeams, the London-based singer-songwriter and poet Arlo Parks reflected on how she defines her sound. She told us about the music and poetry she was brought up on, why certain instruments speak to her, and the effect that the spoken word has on her music. Here is Arlo. Usually lyrics come first for me. I'm very specific about how words sound and the relationship to the words around them. I used to read the dictionary when I was a kid and kind of read out words that I liked. And that's why I think I also gravitated towards spoken word because there's that sense of, you know, a really beautiful sentence brings me satisfaction like nothing else. And I still don't really know where that came from. But I remember being a kid and reading some books and just being like, no, this doesn't sound right. Like I'd always kind of read it aloud. And there's something very beautiful about reading aloud as well, but it definitely informs my music because I spend a lot of time making sure that the lyrics, not when they're just sung, but also spoken, that they sound like they're meant to be together. The poem's called Having a Coke With You. I remember finding this YouTube video of Frank O'Hara reading his poem, Having a Coke With You. And it was interesting because I knew that poem, I'd read it hundreds of times, but hearing which words he emphasized and hearing which words he kind of glossed over and which ones he almost strung together, I think that really hit me. It's even more fun than going to St. Sebastian, Irun, Undai, Biarritz, Bayonne, or being sick to my stomach on the Travesera de Gracia in Barcelona. There's another dimension to saying words out loud that you don't necessarily gather from just reading them. And I think that just ignited my desire to kind of really invest myself in writing lyrics. 
partly because of the secrecy our smiles take on before people in statuary. It is hard to believe when I'm with you that there can be anything as still, as solemn, as unpleasantly definitive as statuary. I mean, I remember I was sitting on the train and I just heard this person say very quietly on the phone, you can take a dog out of a fight, but you can't take the fight out of a dog. And it just was so out of context and just surprising. And when you hear something like that, it's almost as if you're in some kind of strange art house film where the dialogue isn't strung together. It's just kind of random little flashes. And I always write those down in my notebook and try and build something off of them or wonder what the person meant by that. And then my imagination kind of carries me away. I remember watching this live performance of Radiohead performing Body Snatchers at Jules Holland. And there was something so frenetic about that performance. There was something so rough around the edges. It was just very pure and unfiltered expression. And I think when I was younger, I always assumed that a live performance had to be perfect. Everything had to be tuneful. Everything had to be to the record. But hearing that performance where they were almost just like, they were just completely free. It was wild and it was electric to watch. And I think that gave me the sense of realizing that live performance was an art in itself and that it could be experimental. And I also saw this performance of St. Vincent at Austin City Limits, the festival. And just that idea of improvisation and the fact that you could tell that in terms of her instrument, in terms of the guitar, she was just completely in the moment. It was almost like jazz, like jazz musicians improvising as they went and just following these instincts and lightning bolts of emotion in the moment. That really struck me as well. I found, in terms of instrumentation, I found myself being very attracted to either lightly finger-picked guitar, like in albums like Pink Moon by Nick Drake or Carrie and Lowell by Sufjan Stevens, or like very heavily distorted guitars, going back to St. Vincent, or Radiohead, you know, the bands. I think there's something very special about the guitar. There's something very malleable about it because when I think about all my favorite albums, the guitar is kind of at the core of them all. And also I think drums is something that I care about a lot in music. That comes from my love of trip hop and hip hop growing up. And I've always thought of the drums as kind of the beating heart of the song, as cliche as that sounds. And it can really dictate the rhythm and the pace of the song. And I definitely think drums and words are linked in that way you know, which beats are emphasized and which kind of blend into the next. And there's this sense of it being, I don't know, I think in my favorite albums, the threads throughout the album are either in the drums or in the words. Being on stage is a very specific experience. 
like being able to almost heal in public being able to see all these people who have found something special in your music, people who may even have been saved by your songs. It feels like you're just part of this very safe space of people who love music and love what you're doing. But I remember being in Barcelona and playing the biggest stage that I'd played yet at this festival I was playing essentially in front of this big square and it was about five or 6,000 people. And I kind of took off my inner at the end of the performance. And I just heard this like roar that almost seemed like it echoed throughout the whole of Barcelona. And that was really beautiful. Immediately when I think about the power of sound, I think about its power to connect. You know, I think about the idea of dance, how that's almost like a universal language. I think about the fact that people can be moved by sounds without even understanding the language. You know, when you think about things like opera, when you think about songs in different languages, I think that the power of sound is the fact that it can just join us together as human beings. I think that's what's special about it to me. Arlo Parks there for The Power of Sound earlier this year. Our final highlight of this year comes from an episode of Monocle on Culture, where Robert Bound was joined by the legendary singer Sir Tom Jones. With a six-decade-long career behind him, the Welsh superstar released a new album titled Surrounded by Time. It hints at age, frailty and loss, covering songs by Bob Dylan, Todd Snyder and the Waterboys, in experimental arrangements and a bit of brooding spoken word. In this clip, they they discuss Jones's approach to performance, drawing on his memories of performing in Welsh working men's clubs as a young singer. Some of the tracks on this and on, and on these last three um, records that you've done with, with Ethan Johns, they've got a, a confessional quality. They've got a bit of looking in the mirror quality to them. I've loved that. And I know that, I know that you know, lots of people have really picked up on that, that after a career being very larger than life on stage and everyone loving that and digging it. But these things are a different sort of chapter, it seems. Is that easy for you to sort of um, to broadcast, you know, the, the idea that there's a that everybody's a different person when they close the door at the end of the day, aren't they? And it, and it seems like we're seeing a little bit of that, perhaps. That's right. I think you could be more intimate uh, sometimes on record than you can on stage. What I try to do on stage, if, if the song, again, if the song calls for it, close your eyes and take yourself away from the actual being on stage. Sometimes, you know, and... And sometimes when I'm on TV, I've got to be reminded to open my eyes, you know, because I, <laughs> I try to put myself into a place where, you know, that's it. And and uh, Mark, you know, Mark, my son, and Mark, he sort of said, well, you know, if you could open your eyes once or twice, you know, just to see, because it looks like you've gone into another world. And I said, well, I am, you know. Yeah. He said, yeah, but sometimes people don't understand that. But you can you can do that more on uh, on record than you can actually like on TV or, or on stage sometimes. 
you've got to try and hit a, a happy medium sometimes uh, in order not to lose the essence of the song, you see, by p- overperforming it. And that's something that, that I've got to try and hold back on sometimes because, you know, singing in workmen's clubs to a lot of, you know, coal miners and their wives and girlfriends in South Wales, you've got to have a big voice. You can't be up there singing to yourself. You better, you know, you better perform. So when you learn your trade in a certain way, sometimes it's difficult then to... Um, to sort of take to it change. to bits, yeah. Yeah, yeah, to start all over again sometimes. You know, you think, well, wait a minute, i gotta, I got to rethink this. I don't want to look like I'm just coming on like Mr. Jolly, uh, you know. <laughs> this, song is not, this song is not jolly, you know what I mean? Yeah. You've got you to be a bit more serious sometimes. You mentioned those, those days, the working men's clubs in, in South Wales and all the rest of it, from which there is such a proud tradition of, of song and of singing. I'm sure you've been asked this question a million times, but I wonder what what those first songs you heard on the radio were, or what the songs that you heard around the piano were that, that kind of injected you with this kind of passion for doing it yourself, standing up on stage. What were those kind of bricks in the wall for you early on? Yeah. Um, well, as far back as I can remember, there, there was a song I used to do in school called Ghost Riders in the Sky. Ah. You see? where I could accompany myself because I used to bang the desk. And it had a, it had a great sound. If you, if, you sm- if you hit the desk with the, with the, with the palm of your hand or the, of the, whatever that part of your hand is called. Yeah, the heel of your hand, I think. The heel of your hand, yeah. yes. Well, if you bang that, you know, th- there's the bass drum right there, you see, especially on a desk in school mm. that, is, that resonates when you, when you hit it with your... So it was like, bump, chip, bump, chip, bump, chip, bump, chip, bump, chip, bump, you know, like this. I could get a rhythm going and then sing Ghost Riders in the Sky. So I did that without having to rely on somebody playing the bloody piano that didn't know it, <laughs> you know what I mean? Or something. I could accompany myself in some way. So I used to go for a cappella stuff, you know, that I could get up and sing. And I used to see fellas do it a bit later on when I, when I was able to go to pubs and, and uh, work in his clubs myself. I saw a, a man... Uh, his name was Glenog Evans, who was a rugby player, apart from other things. He was a big chap, coal miner, rugby player. And he would get up on a Sunday night in the Woodroad Club. And we would be there, teddy boys, young, you know, hoodlums. Bothering everyone. Yeah, bothering everyone. <laughs> you know, like, oh, okay, come on, Glenog, you know, give us a song. Now, he would sing a song called My Mother's Eyes, right? So here we are, me and my mates, taking the piss, really, you know, thinking, oh, come on, Glenn, yeah, come on, sing uh, like this. And they would open the, the windows in the Woodroad Club, in the summertime especially, of course, and there was another club down on the Broadway, which is a street below us, uh, the Fifth Welsh, right, which was um, another another club. So they would like, okay, wait a minute, Glenn, let's open the windows so they can hear you down in the Fifth Welsh. You know what I mean? Because he didn't want to use the microphone. He would put the microphone to the other side of the stage. I don't need that. You know what I mean? I can sing like this. So we're looking at him and thinking, okay, go on. You know, and he would sing My Mother's Eyes. And this is true as God's my living judge. He would start this thing and we think, oh, okay. And by the end of it, he would have everybody crying. Ah. <laughs> on my life. You know, yeah. All us teddy boys, right? So I thought, Jesus Christ, if this fella... You know, starting off, we're taking a piss out of him and he ends up and we're all 
fucking whipping. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> if you could do that, that is there, there it is right there in a yeah. nutshell. So all those things I was taking on board, you see. And, and then when I got to sing myself in these clubs, uh, I, I would rely on stuff like that. And you can do that with a rock and roll song or, you know, if... Like when I first went into a workman's club with a with a band with my with my rhythm section, right? The first thing was pay them off. This is what they used to show: pay them not to play, pay you not to play. Once they saw electric guitars and amplifiers, you see. So you've got to learn to to give people what they want. Then you can you can teach them if you like, you know, with something that they wouldn't ordinarily listen to. So much so that by the end of the night, the fellow that booked us said, said could I call the, uh, the police station to get an extension and you can play to midnight and we'll move all the tables and chairs back and have a dance. Well, I thought, look at this. From pay them off at the beginning to would there be any possibility of getting an extension? Yeah. You know, for all my life, in yeah. one night. And you think, well, see, there you go. The legendary singer Sir Tom Jones in conversation with our very own Robert Bound. And that's all we've got time for on this week's edition of The Curator. The show was produced by Sam Impey and presented by me, Marcus Hippie. Join us again next week to hear some of the very best of the programmes here on Monocle 24. And thanks for listening. <laughs>